I think you're really going to like this episode of STEM, Insider Tips for Greenhouse Pros. I'm Bill Calkins, and in this episode we're joined by Jason Grimmett, Key Account Manager for Philips Lighting. LED technology is all the talk these days, and I know for a fact growers have a lot of questions about this new lighting option. Jason brings a lot of knowledge and experience to the table, and we're lucky to have him here to explain the potential benefits of LED lighting from a greenhouse professional's perspective. As a former grower in a mega floriculture production setting, as well as experience producing hydroponic veggies, Jason has the street cred we all respect. So let's learn from a pro about the ins and outs of LED lighting. But first, Connect Four, where we take a look at four messages lining up to support one key industry topic. This time, we're talking plants. Living in the good old Midwest, I look forward to fall every year. Sure, I like spring and summer, but fall signifies change. The kids go back to school, the trees change colors, it gets cooler out, and there's that smell of autumn in the air. And fall is for planting. I think customers go to retail garden centers in fall expecting to have fun. Harvest festivals, apple cider, apple cider donuts, pumpkins, and Halloween decorations get their blood flowing. But often, the plant mix is a little bit on the boring side. But it doesn't have to be. In this edition of Connect Four, I want to share four of my favorite fall plants, besides, of course, the usual suspects like mums, pansies, and kale, which I do love. First, a new group of colorful vegetative annuals that I've seen year-over-year growth for more than five years now, Celosia. But not your grandma's Celosia. Celosia intends and twisted, introduced by Ball Ingenuity. You've probably heard of and possibly grown in Celosia intends classic, with the spiky purple flower plumes, I think it was originally bred to be a potted plant and then transitioned to a spring annual, but I actually see the majority produced for fall these days. Probably because it can be grown right alongside your garden mums under natural season or black cloth production, and it has that perfect fall color. But are you aware that there is two additional colors of Intense? Dark purple, which stays a vivid purple throughout the season and doesn't fade to silver like classic, and lipstick, which brings a nice complementary shade to the series. Then there's the Twisted series of Cristata-type celosias. You know, the ones that look like brains? These come in dark orange, red, and yellow, fitting perfectly into fall decor color palettes. If you haven't grown these new vegetative celosias for fall, now is the time. Consumers love them. How about a fantastic fall perennial? I'm all about Coreopsis uptake from Darwin Perennials. And not only do they have the top genetics in this class, but also the production information to nail your crop time for peak fall sales. Flower these guys for a fresh crop and they will definitely sell through. We've seen that proven across the country. With four colors, cream, yellow and red, golden bronze, and cream and red, this series has been winning trial awards all across North America because of its long bloom time and large flowers and mildew resistance. I think Uptick is a true retail rock star and one to include in your fall mix. Third, a big category with tons of cool new genetics, ornamental peppers. I looked through the ball seed catalog and counted more than 65 varieties, all different shapes, sizes, and colors from oranges and reds to purple and yellow. Some are even edible. We've talked on past episodes of STEM about how to appeal to younger shoppers, and folks new to the gardening and decorating scene love ornamental peppers. Look to All America's selections winners that you know, like Black Pearl and Chili Chili, and newer favorites like Samba and Hot Pops, but also be sure to check out one of my absolute top picks for the year, 
the snack series from Pan American. These edible ornamentals can be grown indoor or outdoor. Think about that. A pepper plant on the windowsill producing tasty sweet peppers for grab-and-go enjoyment. Count me in. The final chip in our game of Fall Fun Crop Connect 4 might or might not be kind of a curveball, depending on if you've grown them before or not. Ornamental Millet. Little known fact about your host. Back in the day, I mixed a lot of birdseed. Tons, in fact, at a garden center I worked for. And in that birdseed, there was a lot of millet. So, I still chuckle whenever I think about using millet as the thriller in a mixed combo or planting them in a window box like I did at our house last fall. But they are super cool and perfect for fall. Heck, they look like little corn plants, and everybody wants to reach out and touch the foxtail-like plumes. I think Pan Am has five of them now in the assortment. And see, Copper Prince, Jade Princess, Purple Baron, Purple Majesty. Hold on, it's going to come to me. Jester, Jester. My favorites are Purple Baron, because it's a bit more compact than Majesty, and Copper Prince, because of its color. A lot of consumers also love Jade Princess, because its chartreuse looks fantastic in combos. I think your best bet's to grow some of each and offer them in gallons for the fall. Use them to decorate around your pumpkin patch, make sure they're priced, and they are sure to sell. There you go. Four fall crops to liven up your mix this year. Don't forget, fall is for planting and selling. Now let's get into some new greenhouse technology and talk LED lighting. This is going to be good. It's my pleasure to welcome Jason Grimmett to STEM. Philips Lighting Key Account Manager Jason Grimmett began his career 16 years ago as a grower for Green Circle Growers, a large wholesale annual grower in Ohio. He then worked as a technical sales representative for several companies, using his experience as a grower to solve challenges and increase their customer bases substantially. After a stint as head grower of a hydroponic vegetable facility, Jason joined Philips. In his new role, he develops critical projects and builds the Philips business as he helps growers succeed in the U.S. I'm very excited to have Jason on STEM because lighting, specifically LED technology, is a hot topic these days. As more and more North American greenhouses install LED top lighting, the data coming in is amazing. Crops look great, costs are coming down, and efficiency is rising across the board. In this episode, we'll talk about the benefits of LED lighting, costs versus ROI, how specific crops respond to LEDs, frequently asked questions, any pitfalls to avoid, and more. Jason has a ton of real-world greenhouse experience and plenty of success stories to share. If you've been considering upgrading or installing new greenhouse lights or are interested in the latest lighting technology for greenhouse professionals, this is the episode for you. Jason, welcome to STEM. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. So as I referenced in your bio, you have a ton of experience in the industry, you know, starting off with large-scale floriculture production and then onto the hydroponics side, followed by what sounds like a ton of time in the field visiting greenhouses of all shapes and sizes. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen across the market over the years when it comes to lighting and, I guess, plant production in general? Yeah, well, according to lighting uh, that I see across the industry, um, it's Anything and everything you can think of. Um, I've seen everything from HPS to 
um, metal highlights still, uh, some old, old fixtures that people are still running and not necessarily creating a bunch of light for the crops that they need. Um, and, and the production wise, I mean, it's all over the board. You go to some of the large scale growers and of course they have a lot of automation. Um, everything's, uh, very organized and, uh, specific in how they are planting from seeding to sticking cuttings whatever it may be and then you go to some of the smaller facilities and they're still doing everything by hand and um, no rhyme or reason to how their production line is run Uh, it's just when they have time to get it complete so a little bit of everything out there for sure anything specific when it comes to the way they're lighting those crops Uh, specific for lighting to the crops i would say is Nine times out of ten, when I'm into a facility, um, the light they're using, they don't know what type of light they're offering to their plants. Uh, nine, uh, majority of what I see out there is uh, high-pressure sodium uh, for daylight extension and night interruption. There's still a lot of incandescent uh, light bulbs being used, uh, which are all uh, pretty significant amount of power that they pull and what they're offering to the crops at that time okay well and i think that that kind of sets a stage what we're with what we're going to get into here talk a little bit about lighting technology and where it's going but real quick i think it makes sense just to mention a few points about the ball seed phillips relationship and you know maybe now is the time to quickly touch on you guys are changing your name or a little bit next year from phillips to signify can you tell us just real quick about the relationship and what to expect next year if anything's going to change or how that's going to go yeah, most definitely. So we started our ball partnership uh, last year with Ball Seed. Um, believe at the end of summer is when we signed all contracts, and basically we're utilizing Ball Salesforce, which I believe you're 60 plus sales rep strong. Yep. Going uh, going out to their customer base and calling on new customer base, um, uh, introducing the Philips products. Now, uh, the way Philips is set up. Uh, we have key account managers, which in the United States, there's three of us total, myself, John Burns, and Blake Lang. Blake Lang is mostly focused on uh, sole source production. Uh, we also have uh, two plant specialists in North America. Uh, one is focused mostly on vegetable crops. The other is focused on floriculture and some specialty be- vegetable crops. Uh, I know you guys see a little bit of hops popping up here and there. We, we, he's doing some work and some hops production and things of that nature. Um, but we felt Ball was a great partnership with Phillips to, uh, due to the your name, of course, uh, how large your company is, how uh, expansive, and how when I go into a customer, their ball rep is who they usually refer to when when you know they're purchasing any type of plant material, hard goods, what it may not, whatever they may need. As for the name for Phillips to signify uh, this this year. Uh, well, two years ago in 2016, Phillips split. Uh, the lighting division split off from Phillips. Uh, part of that agreement is we had to come up with a new name and signify as the new name for the company. Uh, we still will be carrying all Phillips products. All lighting will still be Phillips' name. It's just the name of our company is changing to signify. Okay, great. And I think everyone's going to appreciate that because you guys, you know, Phillips is known for 
um, you know, super professional service, high technology. And uh, so, yeah, it sounds like uh, the marketing folks needed to try to differentiate the the different uh, groups within the different fields of medical, consumer goods, and lighting. And so Signify is now the Philips Lighting in North America. So, but you're still working with Philips. So yes, same, excellent. Same, same employees, same, same everybody. It's just name change. Great. So I guess back to the topic at hand, the LED lighting that, that we're going to discuss in this podcast. Our listeners always like a quick history lesson. Um, where have we been with greenhouse lighting? Where are we now? You referenced, you know, all the, the different types of lighting that you encounter when you're out in the field. And most importantly, where are we going in the near future? Yeah. Um, well, to give a little history on Philips and the LED lighting for the greenhouse, uh, back in 2007, uh, Philips Horticulture LED Solution team was established. Uh, Udo Van Sluten, which is our uh, GM for the company, he's based in Eindhoven, uh, Eindhoven Netherlands. He he's basically one of a if not the first one of the first employees. He's uh, he's kind of the one that started up this whole division. Um, 2009, the first commercial project, a multi-layer growing system, was installed, uh, and then move forward to 2012. Uh, the first commercial uh, tomato grower was actually doing a uh, LED install. Um, and then 2013 started some university trials over in the Netherlands. 2014, first commercial project uh, for top lights, which is the replacement for the high-pressure sodium lights, was installed. Uh, 15 Grow Ice Center in our office in the Netherlands. Uh, it's in Eindhoven. We have uh, eight room climate, uh, eight different climate rooms uh, that we have different uh, ratios of light spectrums, things of that that we can actually dive in and develop recipes for different crops. Um, in 2016, we joined forces with Colorado State University, um, have installed uh, their whole research facility, and it's 100% LED, uh, Philips LED lighting in that facility. In 2017, um, we've completed some of the largest uh, or the largest uh, horticulture product or LED install in the world. Um, a huge, huge project. Um was installed in 2017 and of course in ohio of course the great state of ohio which is where you and i are both from yes. uh, the first 100 percent led top light install over uh, a lettuce uh lettuce crop and along with some other herbs wow so that is moving fast and i mean basically 10 years but it sounds like the the real the real large-scale installations have only been in the past three or four years that's uh you guys are moving fast yes so i know that you talk to uh, a lot of growers like the ones listening to this podcast you know so do i and i know that there are common questions that come up in terms of lighting um sounds like you guys have had some already success with installations you've done a lot of trialing so for growers looking to replace lighting in the next i don't know two to three years can you hit on some of the most asked questions? So first off, you know, I got to imagine it's why would I choose LED over high pressure sodium? Is there a difference? Um, maybe a little bit about cost and ROI. I know I've hit you with a lot here, but basically when, when you first talk to growers and they start asking those questions, what do you, what do you usually run into? First question, uh, 
lot of growers, I mean, they're learning now this year, uh, Cultivate Show, a lot more people are understanding LED. We've got a lot more universities uh, talking about LEDs, a lot more research going into it. So it's becoming more of the norm. Um, I believe uh, in the next five to 10 years, it'll be kind of a mainstay where everybody will be installing LED lights over high pressure sodium or anything else. Um, one thing that kind of drives the high pressure sodium market is the, well, basically high pressure sodium lights were street lights and we brought them into a greenhouse to light up a crop. The difference between LED and high-pressure sodium is LED, we can kind of focus in on certain spectrums that plants like and not necessarily our human eyes like. So that actually increases the growth of the plant material. Now, a lot of times a grower, you know, they see the pink hue, that's going to be your most efficient lights. That's the pink color. That's going to drive the most growth into the plant, uh, and it, it's the most efficient for um electrical use and um, the output. Um, so the amount of power that you supply to the light compared to the amount of light um, intensity that you get out of the light is greatly increased if we go with those certain type spectrums. Um, uh, white light is for human eyes. Um, red and blue is going to drive most of the photosynthesis in the plant growth cycle. So that's kind of the difference. Uh, and that's kind of what I go through when I first call on a customer is, you know, I try to gauge on how much they know personally about light. Um, I have a presentation that I can go through. I'm willing to spend as much time as that grower has to give me to kind of explain all those aspects of what, what our lights can do compared to what they currently may be using or maybe they haven't been using. That, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I, I liked what you said about what the plant likes and not necessarily what our eyes like. And because, um, yeah, obviously it, we're, we're, we're really focused on growing crops sufficiently and as, as well as we can. Can you talk a little bit about the cost? I know that always comes up. Um, you know, obviously there's so many benefits that, that cost shouldn't be the first topic of discussion, but I know that you guys have done a lot of work on the ROI. So can you talk a little yep. bit about cost and ROI? Yeah, most definitely. So um, high pressure sodium, of course, uh, majority of growers are using, say, a 600 watt to a thousand watt uh, fixture uh, or the bulb is 600 watt to a thousand watt. Um, now, you can imagine how much power that's pulling. A 600 watt bulb is pulling 600 watts of power. When it's compared to an output of a top light, of um, a Phillips top light, uh, I can produce almost the same amount of power with 200 watts versus 600 watts. A thousand watt, I've got a comparable with a new high output module that we've come out with um, that runs on 265 watts versus a thousand watts. And another thing you got to look at is these high pressure sodium lights. That's what the bulb runs off of. You still have a driver that's uh, uh, taking up some uh, quite a bit extra energy as well. So say a 600 watt is usually about 10% added just for the driver for that fixture. So you're actually pulling 660 watts. 1,000 watts, kind of the same thing. You're usually pulling about 1,100 watts just to run that ballast and then the bulb on top of that. Um, the, of course, you know, a high pressure sodium light, you're heating up a metal 
a piece of metal in that light and it's heating up to a very intense very high temperature to get the light output of that and uh, and causes quite a bit of excess energy expulsion from that led is kind of doing the same thing but at a much smaller scale and more focused um so it's not pulling the the power it's not creating the heat and you're still getting a ton of uh output from that fixture wow it's really amazing at how how uh, that wattage difference in use between uh high pressure sodium and leds i mean 200 versus 600 265 versus a thousand that's that's pretty dramatic and yeah that 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 makes sense as to where a lot of the roi comes into play but yeah, and going to the ROI, uh, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but uh, the uh, uh, comparable, say if I do a comparable between, which I do this um, for a grower, if I'm going to do an install for a grower, a lot of times there's some rebate potentials that the electric provider is offering. So we actually do a comparison of between a high pressure sodium and a LED. We not only use that to show the grower, hey, I can you know, save you this much money, but you think about a 600 watt versus 200 watt, I'm using a third of the power to get the same amount of output of light. Um, a lot of times uh, you're paying 12 to 15 cents a kilowatt hour, depending on where you're at in the US. I know that's pretty average, about 12 cents a kilowatt hour. A lot of times I can see paybacks as quick as a year, depending on the amount of time that the grower's running the lights. Uh, some floor culture guys aren't going to be running quite as long. Um, still can sometimes see as close to two to three year payback just on electrical savings alone. Um, now the spectrum uh, dialed into that plant material and with the assistance of our plant specialist, me looking at the crop, um, we can make adjustments and actually speed up timings and things of that nature to where we can actually get paybacks even closer um, or less amount of time to uh, to accomplish what that, you know, to make that uh, purchase worthwhile for that for that grower. Now, that, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you getting into that a little bit. Um, can you talk a little bit about a learning curve for growers that are probably used to growing with high-pressure sodium? Are there any plant nutrition changes to consider? I know you've been in production on both the, the annual floriculture and the vegetable side. Um, so any, any nutrition that, that comes up that you, uh, have, that you talk to your customers about? And, you know, I, I, I have heard the concern and, you know, that, that plants could get burned, um, I don't know. Is there any anything about a learning curve in terms of production that that you need that you want to share with the listeners? Uh, nine times out of ten, when I go into a grower and they currently have a high pressure sodium uh, install, um, they're not offering quite um, the right amount of light. They're always offering lower and lower amounts, especially if that fixture is old. It's not the output of that fixture is not what it was when they first installed. Uh, nine times out of 10, when I go into a grower, they're only offering 50 micromoles to a crop canopy height uh, for their growing operation. Now, if you do the calculation, if you were to run those high pressure sodium lights for 16 hours, you're only offering like one to two moles of additional light for that plant. Now we base 
most of our research and our recommendation off the DLI charge that Roberto Lopez did at Michigan State University. Mm-hmm. And that gives us uh, uh, how many moles of light that plant actually needs to thrive. So if I'm going to go in, I'm going to offer the optimum amount. A lot of times I can make basically how I explain it to a grower what's the best month that you grow your plants nine times out of ten it's going to be april may time frame that's when the plant's moving the temperatures are still low enough to where they can keep the correct temperature in the greenhouse but they can produce a plug in a shorter amount of time and it's stockier more compact root developments a hundred times better um just everything's working the same so that's what a lot of times i'm going to go in and make a design to where i can make that plant grow in january the same way it does in that optimum time now that does take some nutritional adjustments because if we're pushing a plant like it is in april all growers know you're feeding a lot more that time of year you're um just you know, cooling, different temperature regimes, everything. Uh, you're not cranking temperatures, trying to push growth. Um, we can grow at a much cooler climate that time of year where you're not quite pushing as much heat to produce a nice compact plug or plant or whatever they're trying to accomplish at that time. And that's why we have our plant specialist on staff. He's going to be in there looking at these crops helping the grower make the minor adjustments needed uh, to make sure that that grower succeeds. We don't need any failures out there, so we're here to help that grower succeed. That's awesome, and I know that I can guarantee just about every listener would love to see the plants growing in January like they grow in April and May. I really okay. I really like how you said that. Um. So I guess since this is a global podcast, but you know most of the listeners are in North America, but really all over U.S. and Canada, are there any areas or regions or climates that are more suitable than others when it comes to LED lighting? Well, in the north, well, we'll say up in Canada and the northern United States, of course, our light levels are lower than what they are in the south. Um, we might get two to three hours difference from in Ohio, let's say, versus two or three more hours less of lighting per day than what they get down in Miami, Florida. Um, still, in Miami, Florida, there's certain times a year where they only get to, say, 10 and a half hours of daylight, where we might be sitting at eight hours of daylight. So that daylight extension that we can offer for that additional eight hours, uh, you know, usually we tell growers, let's run for 16 to 18 hours. That'll produce enough moles at a slow rate to where that plant will actually thrive. So, but in Florida, I also sell a ton of lights down there for that daylight extension. They may get high intensities. They may get enough moles at certain times of the year, but they don't get the the length of time that they need uh, to produce those crops. So we've actually sped up quite a bit of crop timings in Florida and in Texas and Southern California. Um, So yes and no. Um, If I was a grower in the North, it would be a no-brainer. In the South, depending on what crops I'm trying to accomplish at what time of year, definitely a need in in the South as well. That makes sense. We do cover all sorts of different climates and, and all the range of crops that, that growers produce. It sounds like uh, LEDs can solve problems no matter where a grower's at. 
So how about um, products? You know, we, we talked a little bit about different climates and product mixes and how, how they react with the LEDs or how they can gain benefits. But how about some products that work best under LED lighting? Are there any crops that respond extremely well or, I guess, on the flip side, anything that, you know, responds poorly or doesn't really show uh, an, an effect with the lighting difference? Uh as in different crops, uh, I've done. I grew a ton of Gerbera when I was a, a, a grower, so that's kind of a crop I've kind of gravitated to. Um, I kind of uh, put more emphasis on that crop just because I had issues growing it when I was a grower. Um, light intensity is very important in that crop, and I believe we've got some some great uh, data. Um, research done in Gerbera where I've actually worked with a few growers throughout the U.S. and up in Canada to to accomplish um, uh, a nice plug finish uh, finish crop in the Gerbera. Um, uh, petunias, calabricoa, uh, geraniums. Uh, I've yet to see any product that I haven't been able to outperform a high-pressure sodium light install with at the current time. Excellent. And we produce a lot of petunia, calabricoa, and geraniums, so, oh, yes. um, as well as all the other crops. And I know that, especially here in North America, we're not as specialized, so your greenhouses have multiple crops in them. Is there any um, is there any benefit or, or negative to the fact that we produce so many different crops within a greenhouse when it comes to LED lighting? Sometimes uh, spectrum uh, and intensity, depending on uh, crop, we may have more specified data coming out of Europe because they do monoculture crops. Uh, In the U.S., the same type grower, same size grower is going to be growing 4,000 different varieties. So a lot of times for LED, we'll have to kind of make, you know, uh, maybe not be perfect for this one, but we'll still produce a very nice plug. It's perfect for, say, the Calibrecoa, Petunia, Geranium, what they're major produce. And that's kind of what I look at is what what crops are you producing? Which ones are you having problems with? Um, we're going to gear our design and um, focus on those crops and still have a wide enough spectrum uh, and intensity to work on everything that you might have to put under that section of lights. So... We're always constantly looking, um, bettering our, our, our data gathering. Um, but yes, United States and Canada, growers grow 4,000 varieties versus one to two varieties. So it's always a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge for the grower as well. You know, they have to have different climates, uh, different watering regimes, different different everything uh, to run run certain crops. And sometimes they don't have the room to segregate all that out. So we make the best of what we have to work with for that customer. And that's probably why you guys have moved a lot of your uh, trialing and research here into the States. And um, you're not depending strictly on uh, European research. You've got facilities and universities set up all over uh, North America here gathering data. So. Definitely. So I guess that's a perfect segue into, you know, because of all this research, because of, you know, you said earlier on that that you thought that, um, you know, we're moving into this becoming more of the norm and certainly looking in the near future. Where is the future going for LED lighting and horticulture? Are there any new innovations you guys are uh, coming to coming, bringing to market in the near future that our listeners should be aware of? 
so at Cultivate this year, we were we released a, a new high output top light. Um, the top light um, we've gained some quite a bit of efficiencies uh, in the output of light. So our current fixtures offer a 2.6 micromole per joule um, coming out of light. So that's the amount of power supplied to the amount of output of light that we get. Uh, the new high output is 3.0 uh, in the most efficient model. Now, uh, a lot of growers like to see a little bit of white light for their workers or whatnot that are in there. Um, supplemental light, you can get away with a higher uh, efficient module, which is the pink light. The the pink light is going to be the most efficient to run. Um, you're going to get more light output for least amount of power put into that. So that's increasing your electrical savings on those crops. Um, we've done the same with a high output uh, production module, which is for sole source production. Uh, we've got a Gen 2.2 coming out um, that will offer um, higher output, lower input. So le less amount of power to supply more light output for that crop. Um, and then a year ago, we've actually upgraded our even our flowering lamps, uh, flowering lamps for daylight extension, uh, nighttime interruptions, uh, increased efficiencies on those by quite a bit. Um, um, where those light bulbs say put out about the equivalent of a uh, uh, 150 watt incandescent bulb. Um, but they're only running on between 11 and 13 watts. So um, efficiencies, I think, will keep increasing little by little. We're not going to see some major jumps like we have in the past, but we are going to see some minor increases. And, of course, the more research we do, the more data we do, the more spe specific we can get on uh uh, quality of light, uh, run times of light, things of that nature in the future. Very excited to be in this part of the industry. Uh, it's different from anything I've done in the past, but I'm very excited about where this is going and what the potential is in the future for sure. Awesome. So it's, well, it's getting to be that time. We need to start wrapping up. Um, but before we do, what else do we need to cover? Is there anything I've missed? And I guess something that, that just occurred to me is, does it matter your size of greenhouse operation? I mean, it seems like this type of technology, especially now, is becoming aff affordable for all greenhouse sizes. But, you know, is this something you suggest to, to growers of all sizes? And um, anything else that you want to cover in the next in the, as we wrap up? Yes, most definitely. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up is uh, a lot of growers that I talk to are waiting, uh, thinking that prices are going to dramatically decrease over the years. They're they're looking at a, a scenario of, uh, say, LED TVs. LED TVs five, ten years ago cost thousands of dollars. Now you can go to Walmart and pick one up for, what, $100? Um, oh, yeah. The technology is is increasing. Uh, the demand for components for that product is also increasing. Uh, if you notice, you'll see street lights are now going to LED. Every light in my house is currently LED. Um, so there's a demand everywhere for this product coming in. Um, so I don't see dramatic price decreases. But one thing I want to mention is these growers that keep putting off and waiting and waiting, um, there is 
as we discussed earlier, learning curve differences between growing HPS or no light versus LED. Now's the time for a grower to install, um, do a trial area, do a bay in their facility, something that they can start learning how this works. Um, you know, do small steps. I don't want a grower to go in and say, okay, replace all 10 acres LED. I'm like, that grower is going to hate me the first year. By the second year, he's going to love me, though. But the first year is going to be tough because it's going to change all his growing regimes. Everything that he's done for years is going to change. So it is a learning process. So we usually recommend 1,000 to 10,000 square feet, you know, however big your bays are. Say you got a 1,000 foot by 20 foot wide. Let's do a bay. Let's get you started. Let's start looking at this product. That way, they have that learning curve completed. And when they move forward, they'll be ready to take a larger jump in the future. Now, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, wow. You know, it definitely sounds like it's, it's appropriate for growers of any size. I like that you said take small steps, trial it, um, start with a bay. You know, get get that learning curve down, get your growers exposed to it, and then once you've seen those benefits, it, it's time to call back and uh, and start expanding. So finally, Jason, how can listeners get in touch with you and learn a little bit more about what's available from Phillips and Ball Seed? I will put links to tons of resources, including some webinars that you guys have done in the show notes. But you know, if a grower has a specific question, how can they get in touch with you? And is there anywhere else you suggest they, they look for information as they start to explore LEDs? Yes, most definitely. Uh, we, of course, Phillips Lighting website. I believe it's still under Phillips Lighting. Or I know it is. Um, uh, phillipslighting.com backslash Horty. Uh, a lot of information, a lot of our case studies, uh, videos uh, uh, from customers that have actually uh, uh, done some installs, uh, have worked with our product. Uh, we have a lot of that information, of course, reaching directly out to me. Uh, like I said earlier in the U.S., we have two reps. Uh, I'm on the East Coast. Uh, another gentleman, John Burns, is on the West Coast. Uh, any questions for the floriculture industry comes to us, uh, uh, leafy greens, things of that nature. Uh, we do have some high wire specialists. So any listeners that are thinking of, or are growing tomato, high wire, cucumber, pepper, things of that nature, we have some specialists on that side as well. Cool. And I'll put, I'll put your guys' email addresses in the show notes so that they can just click on it and, and go straight to you. Definitely. Emails, uh, my email address, you want me to give that, Bill? Or? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Why don't you give yours, and I'll, and I'll make sure to include the, the, the other folks in, in the show notes. All right. My email is pretty easy. It's uh, Jason, J-A-S-O-N, dot Grimmett, G-R-I-M-M-E-T-T, at signify.com. Um, you can also still use the Phillips address, which is Jason Grimmett at or Jason Grimmett at Phillips.com. Uh, but eventually we will be moving to that Signify name. So, Excellent. Well, yes, I will include all of that and more. I know you guys have, have worked on these webinars that answer a lot of these questions and get into uh, the technology um, that, that we're all uh, looking to. And um, One thing Jason, I would like yeah, to mention ahead. as well, Chris Beatty and I will be doing a webinar on uh, uh, September the 11th. I will be in the Chicago office. Um, 
doing a new webinar on how to measure light to make sure that the customers are getting enough light. So um, would like to Excellent. reference that and maybe we could put a link to when that is coming as well. Absolutely. I know that Ball Publishing has their webinar page. So that's about a month from when we're recording this podcast. So that'll be perfect timing. Well, Jason, thank you very much. And to our STEM listeners, hopefully you have a better understanding of horticultural LED lighting technology and how it can benefit your business, no matter how big or how small you are. And as new innovations come to market and begin to see wide adoption in the industry, and we start to see this uh, efficiency that Jason referenced uh, increasing, Ball Seed and STEM will be here partnering with industry experts like Jason and Philips Lighting. Thanks so much for listening to STEM, insider tips for greenhouse pros. I'm Bill Calkins, and you can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com. B-C-A-L-K-I-N-S at B-A-L-L-H-O-R-T dot com. Or on Twitter at Bill Calkins. Be sure to follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics, timely technical tips, and more. And check out the show notes for links to even more content related to this episode, including webinar links and tons of technical resources related to LED lighting. Let's end this episode with a quote from Plato about light that made me laugh as soon as I read it just after recording this episode. We can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light.